welcome to After Alexander. Episode 14, To Macedon. Last time, we left off with the death of Demetrius I as a captive in 283. His reputation would outlive him by many, many years, as I discovered recently while I was reading the Alexiad by Anna Komneni, published around 1147 CE. At the very end of Book 12, Anna makes a reference to Bohemond I of Antioch's ability to besiege cities, which supposedly exceeded that of Demetrius Polyorchites. His besieger epithet is specifically referenced at this point. It is speculated that Anna may have been referencing Demetrius to indicate that both men were ultimately unsuccessful, as Demetrius had been when he besieged Rhodes. However, it nevertheless goes to show that, down the ages, Demetrius would live on. So now, I'm going to do a quick overview of what the Hellenistic world would have looked like in 283, as it's been a while since we last touched base. In Europe, Demetrius' son Antigonus II is in charge of Macedon and Greece, just as his father had been. Cassander is dead, along with two of his sons. The third son, Antipater, who was also a half-nephew of Alexander the Great, is in Lysimachus' domains, having fled there when Demetrius invaded and installed himself on the Macedonian throne. Lysimachus himself holds sway in Thrace and Anatolia, with his son Agathocles having recently been active in chasing Demetrius across the Taurus Mountains and bottling him up in Cilicia. If you continue to travel east beyond those same Taurus Mountains, you come to the vast Seleucid domains stretching from Syria across the Middle East and what is now Iran, and finally coming into contact with the Mauryan Empire, which is now ruled by Chandragupta's son Bindusara. The Seleucid realm itself is split in two, divided at the Euphrates River between Seleucus in the west and his son and co-king Antiochus in the east. Finally, there's Egypt, still ruled over by Ptolemy I. All of these men are also related by complex family ties, as I've mentioned in previous episodes. Okay, got all of that? Great. As we've seen over the last few episodes, the second generation of successors has been becoming increasingly prominent. Seleucus' son Antiochus is now co-king with his father in the east, holding his own court. The last time we saw him, he was in Media, receiving word of his father's intentions to use Demetrius as a pawn. However, this prominence of the second generation has been a trend all across the Hellenistic world. Cassander's children, Philip, Alexander and Antipater if you remember, have all at one time or another been kings of Macedon while Agathocles has also been becoming more prominent. However, for reasons that will become clear as we move on, I'm going to pause and focus on Ptolemy's children, as I did with those of Philip II of Macedon back in episode 6. His first wife-slash-mistress was Thais, with whom he had children while Alexander was still alive, namely Largus, Leontiscus, and Irene. He married a woman named Artacama during the mass weddings at Susa, however, he rejected her as soon as he could, along with everyone except Seleucus, once Alexander died. His next marriage was to Eurydice, 
the daughter of Antipater, and therefore a sister of Cassander. They had five children together, Ptolemy, Meliega, Ptolemaeus, Lysandra, and one other son who we don't really know a lot about. Ptolemaeus had been married off to Demetrius I, while Lysandra had had two political marriages, first to Cassander's son Alexander V, and then to Agathocles, son of Lysimachus. Out of these five, the eldest, Ptolemy, had been intended to be his father's heir in Egypt. Ptolemy had then repudiated Eurydice, and married yet again, to Berenike I. She was Eurydice's cousin, and had been her lady-in-waiting. She'd arrived in Egypt along with her children by a first marriage to a man called Philip, along with Eurydice. Now, I don't know exactly how the spurning of Eurydice and Ptolemy's marriage to her family member occurred, but I can well imagine it made family reunions that bit more awkward. Anyway, this marriage to Berenike produced his final three children, Ptolemy, Philoterra, and Arsinoe II. Arsinoe, the eldest of the three, is at this point married to Lysimachus, in yet another one of these marriage treaties that keep bubbling up to the surface. So, in all, eleven children by three women. As I said, the elder Ptolemy had been intended as his father's heir to Egypt. However, in the year 285, Ptolemy I instead made his son by Berenike his co-king, who shall henceforth be known as Ptolemy II to avoid confusion. His elder half-brother fled to Lysimachus's court, which does suggest a frosting of the relationship between father and son. I can't find out exactly why this, this is, so it's probably down to speculation, unless Ptolemy himself turns up in a time machine and explains why. The elder Ptolemy was impatient and rash, which led him acquiring the nickname Ptolemy Caraunus, Ptolemy the Thunderbolt. This is the name I'm going to use for him from this point on as it makes separating all the Ptolemies in this picture a good deal easier. Plus, Ptolemy the Thunderbolt sounds far more dramatic than plain vanilla Ptolemy, doesn't it? So, that's our overview. In terms of our number of original successes scorecard, only three now remain. Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Seleucus himself. With that said, pull out your popcorn, and let's watch the scrapping begin in Macedon. Lysimachus and Pyrrhus, as we discussed last time, had already been getting involved in Macedon. In 287, both of them had invaded and occupied the north and west of the kingdom. Now, we're going to change perspective for just a moment, and think about how all of this would have been experienced by Antigonus II, Demetrius's son, and now the surviving member of the male line Antigonid dynasty. In 286, while Lysimachus was incorporating and assimilating his Macedonian possessions, Pyrrhus invaded and attacked Thessaly, a region which had been an Antigonid bastion of loyalty up until that point. This attack may have been coordinated by the people of Athens, who rose up and ejected the Antigonid garrison in Piraeus. Antigonus II was forced to conclude a peace treaty with Pyrrhus. In return for unchallenged possession of the town of Demetrius, he surrendered control of Thessaly to Pyrrhus. Only a year after this, his father was captured, which would definitely have been a blow to the Antigonid cause. However, victory inevitably brought with it strife between the victors, as from 285 Pyrrhus and Lysimachus came to blows. 
The Antigonids are going to drop out of our story for now, but we'll come back to the Antigonids in more detail in the bonus episodes before we get to the accession of Antiochus. Alternatively, if this doesn't work out, I'll go back over the Antigonid history when and if they resurface again. Deal? Okay. So, with that, let's hop over to Egypt again. You might think that the invasion of both Lysimachus and Pyrrhus, which would have shifted the balance of power, would have been opposed by Ptolemy. However, political intrigue in Egypt prevented him from acting in the Aegean. As I just mentioned, the elder Ptolemy, Ptolemy the Thunderbolt, had been slated pretty much from day one as his father's successor. Now, however, his preference seems to have abruptly swung to his younger son, although I can't find out a reason why, as I said. It's tempting to speculate that perhaps, given that Ptolemy II is recognised as having been a skilful king, while his half-brother is recognised as impulsive and rash, the elder Ptolemy decided the ship of state would be better off in the hands of his younger son. However, as far as I'm aware, I don't think anybody really knows. In 285, at the same time as the two victors in Macedon started clawing at each other's throats, and thereby likely saving Antigonus II from destruction, Ptolemy I abdicated his throne and gave full power to the younger Ptolemy, who can now definitively be called Ptolemy II. As an aside, the elder Ptolemy I would himself die in 282. It was this change in power that caused Ptolemy the Thunderbolt to flee, as his brother Ptolemy II began getting rid of potential political rivals. There's a whole lot more political intrigue in the family life of Ptolemy II, but I'm going to leave that for a future episode and just concentrate on Ptolemy the Thunderbolt for now. As a quick aside, this leads me to believe that Ptolemy I's elder three children must have been illegitimate, as is sometimes stated, as we hear no mention of any of them getting in on the action. Largus refer was referenced to still being alive in 308 or 307, as he was present at a chariot race. Either he was dead by 285, or not a serious contender for power, as it seems unlikely that, as the eldest son of Ptolemy I, he wouldn't have pressed some sort of claim. However, the usual non-historian pinch of salt applies here. Now, as we said, Ptolemy the Thunderbolt fled to Lysimachus's court. The question of whether to support the Thunderbolt was not a done deal, however, due to the question of relationships at this same court. Agathocles was married to Lysandra, the full sister of the Thunderbolt, but having said this, Lysimachus himself was the husband of Ptolemy II's full sister, Arsinoe. In fact, this split seems to have turned into full-on intrigue once Caranus arrived, with Lysimachus having suspicions kindled against his son Agathocles. The wives of father and son may also have played a role, with Lysimachus's wife Arsinoe possibly working against Agathocles in order to avoid becoming subject to her stepson and her half-sister. All of this culminated in Lysimachus having his own son assassinated and his supporters massacred. However, once the red mist disappeared and Agathocles was found to be innocent of any charge against his father, the thunderbolt was duly forced to flee from a second Hellenistic court. This time, he turned up at the court of Seleucus, who must have been delighted at the opportunity to meddle in a way that Demetrius had never allowed him to do. He accordingly promised to restore the Thunderbolt to his rightful throne. But before that could get underway, there was the question of Lysimachus. 
His hold on power had always been shaky, but with the murder of Agathocles it plummeted. A lot had been resting on the popular and beloved Agathocles in the eyes of Lysimachus's subjects, and with him gone, all of that was lost. City-states promptly withdrew their allegiance, while the few remaining supporters of Agathocles, as well as Agathocles' wife and children, went to Seleucus. Even Lysimachus's army officers migrated to Syria, and a veritable stream of voices complained to Seleucus that he must take down the tyrannical Lysimachus. Seleucus now had the perfect opportunity to open the back door into Lysimachus's realms. How could he refuse? So, as the episode title hinted, the path is now definitively open to Anatolia, Thrace and Macedon. Next time, we'll finish off the story of Seleucus I in a war against the only other original successor now standing against him. In the meantime, thanks for listening. You can contact the show at afteralexpod at gmail.com for any questions or comments. Until next time, have a great week everyone.